Our scripture today is taken from Romans 4, 1 through 12. This is the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Thus says the Lord. The Titanic was the largest ship in the world when it was built in May 1911. As it traveled from Southampton to New York, the Titanic struck an iceberg and it sank, killing more than 1,500 people. Some died in the ship, others perished in the freezing waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Prior to this voyage, many people falsely assumed that the Titanic itself was unsinkable. One unnamed employee is even quoted as saying, not even God himself can sink this ship. Most experts today, however, are certain that the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic, could have been avoided. They point to the many errors that plagued this voyage before and during its takeoff. For example, there were not enough lifeboats on the ship to accommodate all the passengers. Secondly, although the captain received many warnings of floating ice, he completely ignored them. And third, they point to the extremely high rates of speed that the Titanic was traveling at during icy heavy waters. And lastly, although there were binoculars on board, no one knew about them, and so they could not be used to see the ice that was ahead of the ship. So in retrospect, we're now able to see that tragically, things like pride, negligence, and indifference all contributed to the demise that was the Titanic. You see, the enormous size of the ship and its seemingly indestructible nature of it caused people to have misplaced hope. And this is what Paul is trying to communicate to us this morning, that if we place our hopes in anything other than Jesus Christ alone for salvation and faith in him, 
then we too have misplaced hopes. And this is what the Jews who were natural descendants of Abraham were so very fond of doing and placing their hopes in everything but faith in God for salvation. And so Paul's goal is to warn them of the dangerous voyage in life, of seeking to put our faith in anything other than God, lest we too, and they too, be drowned in the ocean of God's wrath. And so here in chapter 4, Paul sets out to correct some of the theological errors that have plagued the Jews for centuries about salvation. Things like relying on their own personal righteousness for salvation, relying on the fact that they were Abraham's descendants, relying on their circumcision in order to be saved. And the way he tries to correct their thinking is by explaining to them that Abraham himself, the founder of their great nation, the patriarch, was saved by faith apart from his works and apart from his circumcision. And so in an effort to correct their misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Paul explains three key elements of Abraham's salvation or his justification to them. Three key elements of Abraham's justification. First, the process of Abraham's justification, verses 1 through 5. Second, the sign of Abraham's justification. Verse 11a, or verse, um, sorry about that, verse 9 through 11a. And then third, the purpose of Abraham's justification. Verse 11b and verse 12. The process of Abraham's justification, the sign of just Abraham's justification, and the purpose for Abraham's justification. So first we began with the, with the process of Abraham's justification. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there are at least two things that Paul wants us to notice in this passage. Two things that Paul wants us to notice about the process of justification. And that is what justification means and how justification works. But first, what justification means. Now, Paul here is using the term justification in a legal sense. I think of in a courtroom setting and a criminal being proclaimed not guilty before, by the, the judge. So it has reference to us sinners being legally declared righteous by God and free of guilt. Now, Paul is not saying that sinners themselves actually become righteous before God as to earn his uh, favor and blessing in this life, but rather that sinners are legally declared to be righteous before God on the basis of faith, as the righteousness of Christ is imputed into their account, and they are therefore free of guilt. Their guilty record of their sins before God has been expunged, and their debt has been faithfully uh, uh, erased. You know, I think of a, a great analogy, uh, Warren Worsby, talked about an Englishman who went on a vacation across the continent to Europe. He took his expensive Rolls Royce with him. On his trip there, the Rolls Royce's motor failed and it went out. And he wondered, what should I do? 
So he contacted the Rolls-Royce dealership back in England, and they sent over, they dispatched a mechanic to go over to Europe. They flew him over there, and he fixed the man's Rolls-Royce. Then he left the man, flew back, left the man to his vacation. Now, when the Englishman returned back to England, he realized and imagined to himself, oh my, how much will I owe this debt for this, uh, for this mechanic fixing my vehicle? So he contacted the Rolls-Royce dealership and he sent them a letter saying, how much money do I owe you for those repairs? And the Rolls-Royce dealership sent him a letter back saying, dear sir, there is no record in our files of ever having fixed your Rolls Royce. No record of anything ever going wrong with your Rolls Royce. Now what a great example of justification that is. Our sins are fully cleansed and our debt is fully paid, completely erased by God. And so the process of justification is God's declaring that a sinner is righteous by faith. So when Abraham believed God, he was justified on account of his faith. But why did Paul choose this example of Abraham in particular to drive home his message of justification by faith alone? Well, the Jews in Paul's day held Abraham in high esteem as both the father of their faith and the very founder of their nation. In his epistle to uh, the Romans, Douglas Moo cites the book of Jubilee where it says that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing and righteous all the days of his life. Similarly, in the prayer of Manasseh, which is a Jewish apocryphal writing, it states that God did not appoint repentance for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the days of their life because they were righteous and pleased God. And that makes you wonder, what Bible were they reading, right? But you see, it's very easy for a self-righteous person to read the Bible and the story of Abraham and to overlook all of the sins of Abraham as is recorded in Scripture and to believe that Abraham himself was righteous before God. And so most Jews just assume that any person who followed Abraham's righteous example any person who followed his example to live a righteous life before God would be justified, right, and accepted by God in the exact same manner. So by proving to them that Abraham himself was justified by faith apart from works, Paul could correct their misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because if Abraham himself was saved by faith, then so too would all of his descendants be all those who lived according to the promise of God. So after explaining the meaning of justification to us, Paul now wants to show us how justification works. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, most of you are employed by someone, right? You have a job. I mean, your employer uh, uh, gives you your paycheck. You don't write him a thank you note, right? And say, thank you for this gift. Um, I really appreciate what you've done for me. No, 
You don't do that, right? Because that check is yours. You work for that. It legally belongs to you. That was earned, right? As Paul says, it's your due. It is not a gift. But the principle of God's grace, however, is different. The Greek word for gift in the passage that we just read means grace or favor. And grace itself, if you, if you remember, is unearned, undeserved favor from God in, the, in light of our positive demerit. Unearned, undeserved favor from God in light of the sinner's positive demerit. With grace, you don't work for your justification. You simply believe in God who justifies you. And your faith itself is not a work because even that is a gift from God. Your very faith itself is a gift from God. And so faith means not doing anything to earn our salvation, but rather trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Faith is the hand that receives salvation from God apart from works, apart from anything that we could do to earn it. So if you're here today and you're not quite sure if you've been justified by God, or if you're here today and you're not quite sure of what it means to be a Christian, Paul gives us two very uh, important clues on what it means to be justified by faith in God. Two very important clues in this passage. First, to be justified by faith means that you must stop working. Look at verse 5. To the one who does not work. So if you try to earn God's favor, if you try to work to earn your salvation, if you try to do anything, then God owes you something, right? That's your due. Uh, What you receive from God, therefore, cannot be grace because you work for it, right? So if you're relying on your church attendance to contribute to your justification, you have not understood the concept of grace. If you're relying on your church membership to contribute to your justification, you have not understood the concept of grace. If you're relying on the fact that you were born in a Christian household or born to Christian parents to contribute to your justification, you have not understood the concept of grace. If you're relying on the faith of your Christian spouse or the fact that you faithfully pray and read the Bible regularly to contribute to your justification, you have not understood the concept of grace. To be justified by faith, Paul says, you must Stop working. Second, to be justified by faith, Paul says that you must believe that you yourself are ungodly. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, according to the Bible, there's only one kind of person who needs to be justified by God. And that is a person who understands that he or she, him him or herself, are ungodly. Remember the words of Jesus who said that, I have not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Again, he says, he who is well does not need a physician, but he who is sick. In other words, if you see yourself as a basically good person, you cannot be justified. If you really believe that you're better than others and somehow more worthy of salvation, more deserving of salvation from God, then you cannot be justified. To be justified, you must believe that you yourself are ungodly and deserving of God's judgment. 
our first point, the process of justification. And now we move to our second point, which is the sign of Abraham's justification. Look at verses 9 with me. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now we've already seen that God justifies ungodly sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews had no problem believing that non-Jews were ungodly. They had no problem believing that, but they saw themselves as righteous and circumcision as God's sign of approval to them that they were righteous. They were righteous and privileged and distinguished by God. And Paul understood this. He understood the Jewish thinking because he was a Jew himself. So in order to disprove their belief that Abraham's circumcision is what made him special in the eyes of God and contributed anything to his justification, Paul explains two realities to the Jews about Abraham's circumcision. Two realities. First, the time of Abraham's circumcision. And second, the meaning of Abraham's circumcision. Now, concerning the time of Abraham's circumcision, you might remember that Abraham was 99 years old when God commanded him to circumcise himself and those of his household. He then commanded him to circumcise every male child that would be born in the preceding generations. So the sign of circumcision was a sign of God's covenant that he made with Abraham and his offspring in Genesis chapter 17. But here, Paul explains to the Jews that God's command for Abraham to circumcise, to be circumcised, occurred at least 14 years before or after Abraham had already been proclaimed righteous by God, that his faith had been accounted to him to righteousness. So that command to be circumcised happened in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham was accounted righteous in Genesis chapter 15 when he believed in God. So Abraham was counted righteous long before he had ever been circumcised. In fact, Abraham was still an uncircumcised Gentile, a non-Jew, when he was declared righteous by God. So Abraham was justified 14 years before. And to put this in a more modern perspective for us, a person doesn't become a Christian by being baptized either as an adult or as an infant. Nor are you saved by going to church or by reading your Bible or by praying. None of those things. A person is saved the very moment they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, at that very moment, counts them righteous. Salvation does not come through the covenant signs of circumcision nor baptism, but only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if it's true that baptism or circumcision play no part in our justification, the question is, why then are they necessary? Why do we need them, right? Why are they important? And this is a question that Paul wants to answer for us in verse 11, which is the meaning of Abraham's circumcision. Verse 11, he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still 
uncircumcised. Here, Paul refers to circumcision as both a sign and a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had while he was yet uncircumcised. Now, the nature of a sign is that it is not to be confused with the actual reality of the thing that it points to, right? It's not to be confused with the actual reality itself, but it points us to that reality. You know, uh, when my wife and I lived to Jackson, Mississippi, oftentimes we would travel up to Chicago. And as we traveled up to Chicago or on our road trip driving, we would see these signs that says Chicago 230 miles ahead. But when we saw that sign, we knew that that sign wasn't the actual city of Chicago itself, but rather pointed us to the city of Chicago. It was not the actual city of Chicago. It pointed us to where it was located. In the same way, circumcision was a physical sign in the flesh of every Jewish male that pointed him to the fact that he belonged to God, the fact that he was a part of God's covenant community, a part of God's chosen people. He was separated from birth to God through the shedding of blood. And so circumcision was a sign of the purification of the flesh that pointed to the greater reality of the greater need to have their hearts circumcised, right, by faith. In a similar way, Christian baptism is a sign that your sins have been washed thoroughly by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. But it also points us to the greater reality of our need to have our hearts regenerated by faith. We must never confuse the actual signs themselves with the reality that they represent. So the covenant signs of circumcision and baptism are both physical signs that point to the inward reality of faith in the heart. If you don't have the reality, then the signs themselves can do you no good. So Paul tells us that circumcision, first and foremost, was a physical sign. But he also says that circumcision itself was something more than a sign, right? Because he also refers to it as a seal. But what did he mean by that? Well, in ancient time, uh, when someone sealed a document, a seal is what validated the document. It's what made it official. It's what made it authentic. And so back in ancient times, uh, a king would have a signet ring, and as he signed very important papers and authoritative papers, in order to make them official, he would sign it, dip his ring in wax and sign it and validate the document, making it official. In a similar way, circumcision is a seal. It was God's validation of Abraham's faith, his stamp of approval upon the fact that Abraham believed by faith in the promise. But it was Abraham's faith alone that justified him and not the physical act of circumcision. You see, both circumcision and baptism are both physical signs and seals of a person's justification. They point to the reality of faith in the heart that must also be present along with the signs. Now, so far we've seen in points one and two the process of justification and the signs of justification. Now Paul wants to, us to see 
the purpose of justification, the purpose of Abraham's justification. Look at verses 11b and 12 with me. The purpose was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk according to the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Here, Paul gives us at least two reasons for Abraham's justifications, two reasons why he was legally proclaimed righteous by God. And guess what? Surprisingly, they had very little to do with Abraham himself. It was certainly not to make him into this iconic historical figure who earned God's blessing and favor by his own righteousness as the Jews falsely believed. Nor was it very for the sake of Abraham's very own salvation himself. No. According to Paul, the reasons for Abraham's justification was for the purpose of blessing two distinct people groups. Two distinct people groups. And these two people groups were Jews and Gentiles. With reference to the Gentiles, Paul says that Paul's reason for justifying Abraham was to make him the father of all who believed, though they were not circumcised. Gentiles. With reference to the Jews, Paul says that God's reason for justifying Abraham was to make him the father of those who were physically circumcised, but only those who shared the same faith that Abraham possessed before he was circumcised, the Jews. You see that? As a Jew, your circumcision meant nothing if you did not share the same faith that Abraham had. Now the question is, how can Abraham be called the father of those who are not physically descended to them, to him, of those who bear no physical relation to them, those who are not his natural descendants? We're no kin to him. Well, there's only one answer, and that is that God's promises to Abraham must be interpreted spiritually and not literally in the Bible. You see, Abraham must be the spiritual father of both Jews and Gentiles alike who share his faith. So God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him must be understood spiritually with reference to eternal salvation and not just the physical land promises. And Gentiles, who are not physical descendants of Abraham, are spiritually related to him through their union with Christ by faith. And notice, Paul mentions the fact that Abraham was the spiritual father of the Gentiles first in verse, verse 11, before he mentions that Abraham was the spiritual father of the Jews in verse 12. And why does he does that? For two reasons, I believe. First, to show the Jews that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. And second, and this is what would have made the Jews extremely angry at the Apostle Paul, that was to show them that salvation had nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with a person's physical descent. God's purpose in human history has always been 
to save people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. God valued Gentiles just as much as he valued Jews. They were just as important to him. Isn't it interesting that in our very own day, in our very own time in which we live, there's significance being placed on a person's race. And we're still having issues in our time over racism. But with God, this is not so. He's always set out to bless every single man. He created every man. God values every human being. Now, in conclusion, I want to talk a little bit more about what this means for us today as Christians, right? As Christians who share the same faith as our spiritual father, Abraham. What does it mean for us? How should this truth about Abraham's justification impact us today as believers? Well, I think it should impact us in two ways, in two ways. First, it should impact our understanding of and appreciation for the love of God in our justification, the love of God in our salvation. And second, it should impact our understanding of and appreciation for the Bible as we read it on a daily basis. You see, Paul wants us to understand the infinite love that God personally has for each and every last one of us in the plan of redemption. In other words, when God spoke to Abraham and brought him out long ago in ancient times to gaze upward at the stars in the sky, and he proclaimed to him that, Abraham, your offspring will be blessed just as the stars of the sky. God had you and your salvation in his mind. After the fall of Adam, when God pronounced judgment upon the serpent and he said that some of Eve's offspring would be saved, God had you in in his mind as he planned your your regeneration to give you a new heart, to take you from Satan's kingdom and to adopt you into his very own, to save you from the destruction that you so rightly deserved. God had you in mind. So as you read your Bibles, and you encounter various passages that speak of God's covenant love and mercy towards his people, Israel, please know that it was always intended for you. It was intended for you and for me as well, the true spiritual offspring of Abraham, because you are Abraham's offspring. What a glorious truth that is. What a blessing. You see, God's plan of redemption has always been to move in human history from the particular to the general as far as salvation is concerned. You see, he blessed Abraham in particular, not for his own sake, but that Abraham would be a blessing to others, that all the nations and worlds, nations of the world would be blessed through him in general. In the same way he blessed Adam and Eve espouses in particular after the fall in Eden when he saved them, not for their own sakes, but for the sake of the entire human race, that we would be granted redemption in general. He blessed Joseph in particular during his time in Egypt, not for his own sake, but for the sake of his family and nation as he brought him up to Egypt or down to Egypt through the famine to save him. Most importantly, God's love was demonstrated for all of us in our very own justification. Not according to his blessing, though, 
but according to his curse. Curse he laid upon his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. And certainly not for his own sake, but instead that he might be a blessing to people of all nations in general. A blessing to both you and to me. Oh, the wonder of the justifying love of God that moves him to save sinners who do not deserve it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to take a moment today to thank God for his love and mercy towards you in your justification. If you're here today and you're trusting in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, I beg you to turn from this misplaced hope and to place your hope in the only sure hope, the only abiding hope, that is the life the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the very anchor for our weary souls. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your love towards us in the plan of justification. Thank you, Lord, that we were in your mind long ago when you justified Abraham by faith. Help us, Lord, not to place any trust or hope in the fact that we were baptized, the fact, O oh Lord, that we read the Bible, and the fact that we pray or even attend church. But help us, O oh Lord, to trust in the only thing, Lord, that will ever abide, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, Lord, we have eternal life and salvation. In His name we ask. Amen.